I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is George Worthner. He's the former Ecological Projects Director for the Foundation for Deep Ecology. Currently, he's Executive Director of Public Lands Media. He's an ecologist and wildlands activist. He's published 38 books on environmental issues and natural history, including such environmentally focused books as Welfare Ranching, Wildfire, Thrillcraft, Energy, and most recently, Protecting the Wild. So first off, thank you, as always, for your work in defense of the wild. And second, thank you for being on the program. Yeah, thank you for having me, Derek. I'm glad to have a discussion today. So today we're going to talk about a road that a lot of people may not have heard about. It's the Eisenbeck Road. Can you introduce that road, introduce the region that it's going to harm, and and then we'll go from there? Sure. <clears throat> the, uh, the Eisenbeck Wildlife Refuge is on what's called the uh, Alaskan Peninsula in the state of Alaska. And the peninsula is that long arm of mostly volcanoes that stretches out to the Aleutian Islands. In other words, uh, it's, um, it's, it's basically part of the Aleutian Range. And Eisenbeck is a uh, wildlife refuge for primarily for black brant, where basically the entire population of black brant uh, utilizes this refuge because it has uh, what are called eelgrass lagoons, and and they're they're very rare in, across the world. And these eelgrass areas are where they feed uh, to fatten up for any migration, both coming and going. And the refuge also um, it has uh, brown bear, wolves, caribou, etc in this refuge as well. So but, before before we move on, can you can you sing the praises of eelgrass beds for a moment longer? Because aren't eelgrass beds just miraculous? Well, that's my understanding. I don't know a whole lot about them, frankly, to tell you the truth there, but the, the ones in this lagoons there at Eisenbeck are the largest in the whole world. Um, so uh, that alone makes this a significant, you know, biologically significant area. And, um, and and I'm not quite sure uh, exactly how the uh, Brant and other waterfowl utilize the eelgrass. I imagine they find uh, whether they eat the eelgrass themselves or, or the stuff that's living on the eelgrass, you know, uh, uh, might be clams or, or other, you know, um, uh, underwater uh, fauna. Uh, but in any event, it's, it's pretty essential to them. And to allow the uh, wildlife refuge uh, to be uh, damaged uh, by development, it will have almost for sure an impact on the wildlife. And in fact, um, I'll come back to this in a second, but there was a you know biological study done by the Fish and Wildlife Service earlier that uh, said there was no way you could build this road through the refuge without damaging the values of the refuge. Now to get back to the road, the issue is is there's a there's a village called King Cove um, that is about 90% Aleut. Uh, Aleut are um, uh, Alaska natives who are uh, you, the name Aleutian Islands comes from Aleut. Uh, they are somewhat closely related to. Uh, Eskimo people that are found further north, but they speak a slightly different language because they colonized Alaska at a different date than from Eskimos and from uh, Athabascan Indians. 
that are the interior of Alaska. Um, anyway, the Aleuts in this village of Kinko are primarily, they make their living primarily from being commercial fishermen. And the biggest cannery in all of Alaska is also located in Kinko for seafood um, uh, production. And one of the issues here is that there is a all weather huge airstrip in another little town close by called Cold Bay. And this airstrip was built during World War II uh, as a defense against Japanese invasion of Alaska. And so it was built so that, you know, big jets could land there. And what the issue is, is that the, the right now, in order to ship fish from King Cove, uh, they have to put the fish on a boat take it around through some waterways over to um, the airport at the other end um, where uh, Cold Bay is, and then unload the fish and then put them on a, another truck, take it to the airplane and so forth. And so the goal is, is if this road can be built, uh, they can eliminate a lot of those steps and, uh, and, you know, make a bigger profit and send out more fish that way. And also um, they get, cannery workers in and out. Um, most of the people that work in the cannery are from the Philippines, um, in and out to the cannery from that jet port. And the other reason for the desirability of the road is the uh, people there claim that if they have a medical emergency, they need to have a road in order to get to the airport. And this is where it gets a little tricky. When the road was first proposed, um, the justification was basically economic. But of course, that doesn't sort of sound so well. We're going to maybe destroy a wildlife refuge, um, and or at least a portion of it, by building this road. And uh, we just want to do it because of economic reasons. So now you hear it's for medical reasons. And because of that, back in... I believe it was 2012 or 13, uh, Secretary of Interior Jewell and, and, and others uh, who were trying to make a decision on this whole Eisenbeck uh, road issue uh, were able to get funding to put in a, a, a hovercraft so that um, you could take, for in a medical emergency, somebody by water relatively quickly to the airstrip. Uh, the other thing that was done is a, uh, a new clinic was built in King Cove so that in most cases they could treat any kind of emergency there, uh, you know, without having to fly a person out to say Anchorage. And the third thing is that they have a Coast Guard station there and the Coast Guard helicopters are able to fly in incredibly bad weather and can transport uh, a patient from King Cove to Cold Bay to fly them out. But that was not good enough for the um, uh, the people in King Cove. In fact, they tried to, um, they took some of the money that was allotted for operating this hovercraft and they used it to partially construct the road uh, on their lands. And I have to back up here and explain a little bit. Uh, back in the early 1970s, all the um, there was a big settlement with all the native people in Alaska called the 
Alaska Native Claims Land Settlement Act, something like that. Anyway, uh, uh, ANILCA. Um, and that was uh, a, a historic event where um, every native in Alaska got uh, some land that they could choose for their personal use. Every village or, or community got more land around the village um, for the village's use. And then regionally, uh, there was um, a uh, land selections for uh, regional native groups uh, that um, there were, I believe, 11 of them in Alaska. And so you have all this private land as a result scattered around Alaska. So so anyway, they built part of the road across some of their private land, but then they run up into the boundaries of the refuge. And a complication for all this is that the refuge has an overlay of wilderness. And according to the Wilderness Act, um, you know, you're not allowed to have any roads. And so putting a road across the refuge would really, uh, you know, be illegal. Well, so the uh, people in King Cove tried to get permission to build a road. Uh, it was not granted by Secretary of Interior Jules, who said that the important values of the refuge and the wilderness were far too great to compromise with the road. And these other measures were suitable. Uh, and, and it's important to point out that the situation in King Cove is not unusual. I mean, there are dozens and dozens of villages in Alaska that have even less access to medical care quickly, you know, because they don't have good airstrips uh, they, or they're uh, in places where the weather is really, really terrible. Uh, so, so King Cove's situation is not unusual. Um, so that's sort of the background on this. Now, what's happened, then the Trump administration came along and the uh, Secretary of Interior with Trump uh, decided that he was going to override the Wilderness Act and approve a land trade of, of, of land that the Aleuts own for land in the refuge along the road route so that basically the road route would then be private land. And, uh, and then they could get on with building the road. Well, that was challenged uh, by a number of environmental groups uh, in court. And um, the, uh, the court uh, ruled in favor of the Trump administration. And then uh, the Secretary of Interior Hagland Biden administration comes along, and instead of challenging that decision, they have agreed with it. They're not going to challenge it. So they're, they're in a situation, this is, this is a thing that people have to realize, Secretary of Interior Hagelin and the Biden administration are setting up a situation that may uh, sabotage, in a way, all the lands in Alaska, if not elsewhere, all the public lands that are protected as refuges, uh, parks, wilderness areas, etc. Because what this is saying is that the Secretary of Interior and summarily decide to eliminate wilderness that Congress set aside, eliminate a wildlife refuge, eliminate a national park or a portion thereof just by their own decision. You can see how dangerous this could be um, for uh, protecting all these public lands that we've set aside for protection. Wait, wait. So, so normally if 
some anti-environmental government wanted to um, get rid of the, I don't know, the Raywa Wilderness Area in Colorado or wanted to put a road through that, what would be the process? I mean, the only way that could happen or up to now is that you would have to have a congressional legislation that had to be approved by Congress and then signed by a president. Um, That's why this is so dangerous. This is subverting that whole process. Uh, It's possible that you could get Congress to decommission wilderness someplace. In fact, it's been done on very small areas already several times. Uh, But um, but at least there's a whole public process involved where, you know, you you have Congress has hearings. It decides whether uh, to vote for this or that. And and this is being uh, circumvented simply by Secretary of Interior Hagelin's decision. Now, it's really important to understand that there's some other friends of the court that have signed on to support the Secretary uh, Hagelin and uh, on this. And that includes some other native groups in Alaska. And in fact, uh, one of the groups that's signing on as a friend of a court um, has uh, said that they want this measure to be applied to all uh, national parks and wildlife refuges and wildernesses in Alaska. In other words, um, uh, if some other group says, hey, we want to road through this wilderness or that national park or whatever, all we have to do is convince the Secretary of Interior to go along with it, and there you have it. And uh, to give you one example of another issue in Alaska that, in fact, one of the Native groups that's supporting this Friends of the Court thing is the uh, in northwest Alaska is a, a Nana Corporation, which is the the tribal group for Eskimos up in that region. And they have uh, big mining claims called the Ambler Mining District, uh, which is in the Brooks Range. And there's a proposal right now to build a 211-mile-long road from the Pipeline Hall Road along the southern edge of the Brooks Range to these mining uh, deposits so they could be economically developed. And, of course, uh, the the natives who they own those mining claims uh, really see it essential to be able to have the road. And the road would, among other things, cross the Gates of the Arctic National Park. So you would have to eliminate part of the national park to get this road through. It would also cross some wild and sink rivers and a whole lot of other uh, part of a, a national wildlife refuge. So you can see how dangerous this uh situation could be for all public lands. And it's not clear whether this would apply to lands outside of Alaska, but I don't see any reason why it wouldn't, uh, because basically if this is allowed to stand, uh, this decision by Hagelin, uh, then it could happen anywhere. Now, I will tell you that there's, it's a really bad situation. This is all the nuance and so forth. The, 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 right now there's a, um, uh, a, a, a case before the a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that is asking them to reconsider this decision. It was a, a three-member circuit court decision, two of whom were Trump appointees who agreed with the um, uh, to allow the, the road to be built. And so uh, uh, a group of 
folks called the Friends of Alaska National Wildlife Refuges is suing Secretary of Interior Hagelin um, uh, to try to uh, get the 11 members of the circuit court to reconsider it and throw it back uh, for uh, another decision. Now, here's the bad part of it or how it could happen. One, the 11th members of the circuit courts could decide they're just not going to hear the case, in which case it would stand. Um, if they do throw it back, uh, it's likely to be appealed by the Aleuts in King Cove and the other native groups, and perhaps maybe even Secretary Hagelin and the Biden administration, which would be really strange. Uh, but that decision might be appealed and then taken to the Supreme Court. And given the makeup of the Supreme Court these days, I have a, not a lot of hope that they would say that protecting wilderness and a wildlife refuge is uh, that important. Uh, the other way it could go uh, is that, um, of course, uh, Hagelin and, and the Biden administration could change their decision about supporting the road, but um, that's unlikely. And, and then one of the problems we have here, and this gets tied up in this whole identity politics and racial stuff, the, um, the Aleuts in, in King Cove uh, have written letters to papers and, you know, been quoted in articles and so forth, suggesting that opposition to this road is based on racism. They, they claim that it's because uh, people outside of Alaska don't care about their situation and, and uh, their medical needs and so forth. And, and they, I mean, and some of the people that they've named in some of their letters include uh, sec former Secretary of Interior Bruce Babbitt, who wrote a letter supporting protecting the, the refuge and the wilderness. Um, President Jimmy Carter wrote a uh, supporting uh, friend of the court um, uh, document. And, you know, he's characterized as being a racist, too. I mean, this is ridiculous if you know who these people are that to insinuate that. But it's this they're playing the race card in that anybody who opposes this road uh, is automatically a racist. And even though there are other alternatives that work uh, as well or nearly as well as the road. And, and keep in mind, even if they built the road, if you've got a blizzard going on, you're not going to drive the road either. So it, it isn't like the road is a uh, fail-safe mechanism for getting somebody to the airport in an emergency. And the other part of this that's, oh, it, it's just really, uh, you know, terrible is that they're going to uh, approve of a land exchange too. And the land that's being traded from the Aleuts to the wildlife refuge is far less ecologically valuable than the lands that will be traded and turned over to the Aleuts as part of the land trade. And again, Secretary of Interior Hagelin is approving of this. And um, I, you know, it, it, part of it is who knows what's going on behind the scenes or whatever, but um, uh, Hagelin did visit this area, I think it was in April, and they did a big ceremony and called her Mother Bear and so forth. Uh, yeah, so it's possible that, you know, of course, they're trying to get her to to not um, uh, rescind the road permission. Uh, but, it, you know, part of it was playing upon the whole uh, native thing. Uh, you know, well, you, you know, you have to be aligned with us because you're part native. And um, 
And then the way it gets even more complicated is that the environmental groups that would normally be vicious, vocally opposed to this road, and in fact were when it was a Trump administration that was proposing to approve the road, uh, have suddenly gone silent. Uh, I have not seen a single, you know, when it, when it was Trump, I got emails and alerts from different groups like the Wilderness Society and Defenders of Wildlife and, 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 and other uh, organizations, Sierra Club, like that, saying, hey, we have to prevent this road from being built. But once it was Secretary of Interior of Hagelin and the Biden administration uh, approving of the same road, everybody's silent. Now, I have to mention that the court case that is trying to reverse this decision is supported by those organizations, but they're not public about it. And I think it, the reason is, is they do want, they don't want to appear to be against um, uh, Secretary Interior Hagelin because the, when she, her nomination was up, they all lobbied strongly to get her nominated. So it would not look good for them to suddenly be opposing something uh, by her, uh, in, you know, out in the public. But this is a dangerous thing. And unless there's um, uh, a lot of public outrage expressed, uh, I think this could go forward unless we get really lucky and then and 11 member Ninth Circuit Court uh, decides that they have to reconsider the decision. But that doesn't mean that the, if they reconsider it, they won't come to the same conclusion either. So one of the things that I want to just mention is that um, various, sometimes Democrats can be not quite so horrible as Republicans environmentally, but it really is sort of a good cop, bad cop when it comes to a lot of environmental stuff. And I remember, I remember when, sorry if this is too much history, but I remember in 1992, George Bush the first saying that he wanted to weaken the Endangered Species Act. And I got all in a high dudgeon about that. And then when Clinton came in, he didn't, weaken the Endangered Species Act, but he did things that made it so fish and wildlife couldn't be as effective at protecting endangered species as they had been. And and this this is it's it's like it's like a one two punch where, you know, this was proposed by a Trump Secretary of the Interior and then and then Biden comes along and agrees with it. And it's just <clears throat> I guess all I'm saying, and I should have just said this, is that as environmentalists, we shouldn't count on Democrats to protect us either. Right, exactly. And and that's the problem is, you know, what we've seen, you know, I think it's been a problem, is what we've seen is that all these in, in larger environmental groups, for the most part, but, you know, the big national groups and regional groups have totally identified themselves as being, um, you know, supporters of the, any Democratic candidates in administration. To, the to such a degree that they cannot effectively criticize any Democrat uh, that may not be, you know, protecting the environment the way one would hope. And it has, in my view, gotten even worse with the uh, uh, with the situation with Native uh, people in, in this country, which who are 
And not that, you know, and I, I'm not generalizing here, not every native and every native tribe or whatever uh, is doing uh, environmental damage, but uh, there are lots of examples where some are and you never hear about them. I'll, I'll give you another example. The Navajo tribe is the third largest coal producer in the United States today, you know, and uh, they recently bought a, a coal strip mine in Montana and when the state of Montana said you have to pay a reclamation bond uh, to clean up the mining area after you mine, they said, no, we don't. Uh, and then the state said, well, you have to follow our environmental laws. And they said, no, we don't. Um, and, and, and I didn't hear anything about that, even from the Sierra Club, which has a, a, a campaign called Beyond Coal. Uh, you know, it, there, nobody wanted to say anything about the Navajo's coal mine. Um, it, and when you do hear things, you only hear one side of it. Another example would be using Alaska, um, and people are, a lot of people at least are familiar with the proposal to possibly drill for oil in the Arctic wildlife refuge has been off and on for, for years now. Um, the, the, uh, coastal Eskimos that live along the coast there are all for, um, doing, uh, drilling there. And, they um, support oil drilling all along the coast because they have leases to the minerals, i.e. the oil, under the ground. And then, so they support that. But whenever you see anything by conservation groups, they'd always uh, uh, trot out the Athabascan Indians south of the Brooks Range, the Gishwin people, and say who, you know, some of them are opposed to the drilling because they say it will affect their ability to hunt caribou, which of course is another self-serving thing. They don't say we want to protect the Arctic ecosystem. But um, nevertheless, it's never mentioned that the Eskimos are all for drilling because that doesn't fit the myth. And so it, it implies that uh, if you're Eskimo or you're Indian, that you are somehow automatically an environmental uh, activist or, or have an environmental persuasion. And that's not the case in a lot of situations, but nobody is willing to talk about that um, and to condemn uh, tribal groups when they do things that are less than desirable, like this situation with the Eisenbeck. And if it was just the one road across the refuge, that would be bad enough. But the implications of this are huge, and we are not hearing much from environmental organizations about how bad this could be for all the parks and refuges and wilderness in Alaska, much less elsewhere. One of, one of the problems with identity politics in general is that, um, I mean, there there is a there is a a good. There's a phrase that I really like called primary emergency, which is if you are a if 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 your family grew up. Uh, being a, a migrant worker, there is a pretty good chance that the primary emergency in your life is the conditions of of migratory workers. And if you are a woman, there's a pretty decent chance that your primary emergency in your life might be, um, you know, men's violence against women. And so there are are and if you're if you're a Native American, then of course your primary emergency might be conditions on reservations or reserves conditions of your people and that's really 
important to advocate for. But one of the problems that I never hear talked about is that identity politics ends up being inherently anti-environmental because within the context of this entire society, if you're advocating for solely for the benefit of your group, nobody is going to, to advocate for the eelgrass. Nobody's going to advocate for uh, redwoods. Nobody's going to advocate for um, grizzly bears because because grizzly bears aren't given a voice in this in this culture or or in our decision making processes I should say and so identity politics ends up being it it breaks my heart when i see environmental organizations that used to put the earth first in all of their decisions or at least ostensibly put the earth first so many environmental organizations have uh, no longer do that. And so it ends up who is actually advocating for wild nature. And if you do, then you're accused of... of. Well, and here's, here's one more thing about this, and sorry to go on about it, but I, I feel very strongly about this, that, that um, you know, it used to be that it was mainly anti-environmentalists, or I should say right-wing anti-environmentalists, who would say gall darn environmentalists choose nature over humans and they would say that when we would attempt to stop ORVs when we would attempt to stop logging in some area when we would attempt to stop them putting in a road because I mean I'm sure you've faced this exact argument before I've certainly have fought it where you want to take it you want to either remove a road or you want to not allow road in and the the hardcore right-wing anti-environmentalists would say, gosh, you hate disabled people, don't you? Because you don't want anybody who is in a wheelchair to be able to get up to see these beautiful sights. And it's like, no, I'm actually just trying to protect wild nature. And my point is that that used to, it seemed to me, come a lot from the right. And these days, we're hearing it a lot from the left as well. And you can either ignore everything I said you can take this a different direction. You can do whatever you want with it. Well, I totally agree with that uh, analysis. What I've seen is a lot of groups have uh, given up their mission or, or shifted it so much that they no longer put, uh, you know, the original mission of environmental protection or protection of wildlife or whatever as their primary mission. The Sierra Club is a good example. Uh, you know, with the recent years, they, they have changed their mission uh, I believe there's like five values that they list and don't say anything about wilderness or wildlife, you know. Uh, it's um, uh, and, and it's not to say that, that, that some of these social justice issues aren't important uh, because they are. But there, there are a lot of existing pre groups out there that have been doing it for a long time. You know, the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, you know, Urban League, all these other groups that have been trying to uh, advocate for uh, social justice. And uh, and what worries me is if if all the uh, environmental groups now make the social justice movement their primary uh, mission, who is going to advocate for the grizzly bears or for the, uh, you know, climate or for, uh, uh, you know, the, the rivers and so forth? And we are seeing um, the environmental movement being gutted, I think. Uh, it's 
its power uh, uh, because it no longer is willing to play that uh, role of uh, being a strong advocate with the primacy being put on uh, the, the the voiceless ones, as you mentioned, the, the wildlife that doesn't have a voice. It used to be that groups like the Sierra Club or the Wilderness Society tried to be that voice. And I see less and less of that happening these days. And and um, and on the by contrast, the problem is, is uh, a situation like this Eisenbeck Road is a good example. Uh, a lot of people that are on the right politically tend to be very favorably inclined towards development and uh, towards business and commercial interests. So, so you have you don't have any pushback from that side, and now you don't have pushback from the other uh, side of the political spectrum. Uh, there's one more detail I should mention, which is you will hear from advocates of the road that um, no large corporations will be allowed to use the road, it can only be small businesses. But as defined by the government, a small business has less than 750 employees, which of course most of the commercial fishermen in King, in King Cove uh, that own these boats are really expensive. Um, you know, they might have five or 10 crew members, so they don't qualify. They can ship their uh, fish on that road. And even the cannery that's there, it's owned by a large corporation uh, in Japan, I believe it is. Um, but all they would do is make a subsidiary and then they would qualify as a small business as well. So it, that's kind of like a little smoke and mirrors that's being presented as well. So you should be aware of it. So we have this thing. I think part of it might be going on, too, it, with the Biden administration is um, Lisa Mikowski, who is a senator in Alaska, uh, has been, you know, somewhat friendly to some of the things that the administration has tried to do, including how she voted to uh, impeach Trump. Uh, and so they and she's very much in favor of this road, as is the rest of the Alaska delegation. So this is this might be a sacrificial lamb, so to speak, to uh, get some sort of additional cooperation on other issues, which the administration sees as more important than whether uh, the wildlife refuge is sacrificed for uh, commercial interest. If it were just this wildlife refuge, I wouldn't agree with it, but I could see how somebody could think that way. But Everybody I've talked to who are experts on this, uh, on the legal aspects and ramifications, have told me that this is much bigger than this one road and this one wilderness area, and that it could affect all the public lands in Alaska, uh, essentially be open for being traded away, uh, for private land uh, exchanges or, or right-of-ways for roads, and, and the elimination of things like wilderness, which... Right now, only Congress is allowed to do that. This is essentially saying that Congress is overridden. And so we're not getting citizen representation on these decisions. Sorry to keep banging on this, but I want to go back to, to what I was saying a moment ago, because another thing that really bothers me about this is that if you advocate for wild nature, um, you are considered to be a terrible person if you're not going to also advocate for various social justice issues. But nobody, can you imagine if you walked into um, the Southern Poverty Law Center or 
an organization that was primarily concerned with African-American welfare or any of those and said, you need to start advocating for coho salmon right now, you would be laughed right. out of the place. Right, exactly. It's and, not going to happen. And again, I have no problem. I mean, this is what it means to live in a pluralistic society, is that there should be people, if, if what they want is a road, they should advocate for it as forcefully as they wish to. Um, but opposing that road does not make you a bad person. Um, opposing that road simply makes you someone who opposes that road. And I, I so strongly object to the characterization that is happening more and more these days and um, just the silencing of... And here's another thing that I wanted to bring up to this is that when, when they talk about, about native approval, well, two things. One is I think it's really important what you said about how in these Alaska cases, and this is true around the country, is that so often, since they're within the larger capitalist system, so often the tribal governments act in ways that are that are for the financial benefit of their organization. I mean, I'm sorry, of, 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 the, of the nation, and you can completely expect them to. But at the same time, there's another thing. I, I've never forgotten that many years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago now, I was talking to a Native American environment, a person who's, who is Native American and a strong environmentalist. And I said, do you trust any tribal governments in the United States to make the best environmental decision? And she thought about it for a little while. And then she said, no, honestly, I don't trust any of the tribal governments. So not only, and we have the whole Native question, but also we shouldn't, uh, it is, I would say, racist, in fact, to sort of homogenize all Native peoples and to presume that simply because one group says this, that that is representative of all Native voices. So my point is that there are, I'm sure, Aleuts who, um, who prefer wild nature over what benefits the corporation or what benefits the, the fishing industry there. Um, but those end up getting not listened to necessarily. My point is that when we listen to a tribal governance system, we are actually listening to another form of corporation at this point. Uh, and that, well, is, and me... that can be separate, very separate from what... I mean, there are big fights, as we all know. There are big fights that go on between traditionalist elders in communities and the tribal governments. Those happen all the time. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I, I was just basically going to agree with your analysis, and that is, yeah, uh, there, there are differing opinions. My uh, thing that I have found is the, I use the term follow the gold, uh, which is to say that uh, when, uh, like an example, just to use the Eisenbeck Road, there are other alleyouts who are opposed to the road, my understanding is, uh, that they are opposed to it, but they don't live in King Cove for the most part. They live in other villages where, from their perspective, this might affect their ability to, say, hunt brant uh, and other wildlife, uh, uh, but, they, uh, th but they will get no 
ben, you know, financial benefit from having a road there. Uh, so when you look at the situation of where who's benefiting and and how, uh, it's it it it's not surprising. I I can't say that if I were living in King Cove, I wouldn't be for the road too. Uh, you know, given those circumstances. But that's why we need to have protections. That's why we need to have uh, the ability to question uh, what the government does and the decisions made by the government. And th when it comes down to just a Secretary of Interior as being given permission to decide the fate of you know, all the public lands, essentially, that's a dangerous situation, in my view. And we need, you know, even though Congress doesn't always go uh, in an environmental way on decision making, but at least we have some influence there. And because there's so many different people's interests being represented in Congress, I, I, I'll take that any day over the decision of a simply one individual. I mean, even if Secretary Hagelin were to make no other decisions during her term that I would consider bad, uh, you got to remember the next election might turn out to be an uh, election of, of a Republican Secretary of Interior who will simply turn around when you try to say, "Oh, the Secretary of Interior shouldn't be allowed to make a decision." Oh, yeah, well, your your person, Secretary of Interior Hagelin, went and summarily made decisions just on her own. Uh, how can you tell me now I can't? And that's what the real danger is here. We're setting up a precedent that could really hurt conservation across the country. And the other thing I want to say, too, is I, I, you know, I've lived in a whole lot of native villages around Alaska. I've, I've spent a lot of time there. And, and, and in a lot of them, particularly the more remote ones, uh, it's, it's expensive to live there. Uh, and so when the opportunity to make money off of some resource extraction uh, or exploitation, such as drilling in the Arctic Refuge or, 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 or tapping into the Ambler Mining District to build a, a, a mine there, or, for example, another new thing that's just come up that you haven't heard about yet is there's a proposal for a gold mine in Lake Clark National Park, also being run by Native people. Uh, you know, nobody talks about these things. And I, again, I think if I were in one of those small villages, I'd probably uh, tend to, to be persuaded it was a good thing. Um, maybe, maybe not, I, you know, but I, I can't say. So I'm not trying to demonize these folks for uh, their position, but we need to have some way to counter that position that's effective and equal amount of, of uh, authority to counter those decisions. And we don't have that now. And if the court, you know, decides badly on this, it goes against uh, the uh, uh, interests of the wildlife refuge here uh, in the wilderness area, I think we see a real danger for all these conservation lands across the country because, I mean, it really, I can think of lots of examples. Who, who, who wouldn't uh, say right now, for example, that um, uh, one of the uh, issues that are out there is, is drilling for oil in parts of Utah right now. In fact, the U-Tribe is all for drilling for oil down there. Well, you know, if they can, if the Secretary of Interior can just exchange lands, what's to prevent, uh, you know, a, a secretary, this one or some future one to say, 
oh, well, we'll trade out some lands in, say, Canyonlands National Park that has oil under it for some other land that the Utes have somewhere else that doesn't. Uh, yeah, this is the kind of thing that could happen. And uh, who's going to be able to oppose that if it's a decision uh, of just the Secretary of Interior? So I know this is way off the subject, but it's it's if if we ignored the uh, of the precedent is incredibly important. I completely agree with you. Um, is is the exchange itself is the land that the that the government is getting? Is it? I think you already said this, but I just wanted it to say it again. Is the land that the that the government would be getting back less ecologically important, or is it more ecologically important? Would this if we ignore the precedent? Would this be a bad trade? Yes, it would be. It is the. Uh, it has been determined by the Fish and Wildlife Service when Secretary and Jewel uh, uh, did not approve the road. One of the reasons she did not approve the road and the land exchange was that they were not of equal ecological value. That was the land that was being proposed to be traded by the Aleuts uh, was simply far less. Uh, ecologically valuable than the land that they would get and then compromise with a road corridor through it. That's what I thought. I just wanted to, to be clear. Um, so yeah. what, what we just have a couple minutes left and what can, if, if there's a few levels, one of them is what can people do about this particular case? And the other is what can people do about helping to, uh, remind environmental organizations that uh, wild nature matters at least a tiny little bit? Well, I have several things to, to go on your suggestion. One is definitely write your congressional representatives, your congressmen and senators, uh, unless you live in Alaska. I don't know if it would do any good, but elsewhere, and say that you're concerned about this Eisenbeck National Wildlife decision that the administration has put forth and that um, you oppose the decommissioning of wilderness and you oppose the land trade and that the refuge should be remain intact. Um, and, and, and really uh, that can sometimes make a difference. I, I, I don't want people to think I've had Congress, Congress persons tell me that sometimes they get one letter on an issue and that's the only letter they get. So they, they vote with that. Now, there is not a vote happening right now, but that doesn't mean that Congress can't weigh in on this issue. And the other thing I would say is write all these in, these groups like the Wilderness Society or Sierra Club or whatever you're a member of, the Center for Biodiversity, et cetera, and tell them that you want them to be vocal and that they need to get more uh, media coverage of how bad this road would be. Because the problem is, is most people don't even know about the issue. And unless they know about the issue, they're not going to be upset. And they need to be uh, informed and tell and remind these groups that their primary mission, at least for the longest time, was to do environmental protection. And that had to be the top priority. And that they need to realize that just because there's... Uh, uh, Aleuts involved in this that it's not, not, not something that they should ignore and um, we we really need to oppose this I think because of the implica long term implications. Now it could be uh, just to give these groups a slight 
um, backing out thing, because uh, I haven't talked to any of them directly. Well, actually, I should say I have tried to contact them, but none of them would let me write anything or say anything. They didn't want to have any quotes. But uh, uh, but I think part of the uh, uh, issue is, is they, they want to see what the courts decide, because if the court, the 11-member circuit court, does decide to remand this decision, it's possible that maybe the road will not be built. So maybe they're saying, well, Let's wait until then, and then if it, we lose that case, then we'll we'll open up the the guns and try to fight this harder. I don't know, but that might be part of their strategy. But I think that's a dangerous strategy because the problem is it's not just this one case. There's all kinds of issues out there, like the, I mentioned the road across the Brooks Range through the Gates of the Ark National Park being pushed by the Eskimos in northwest Alaska, or the uh, the efforts to uh, uh, the, the Navajos are opposed to a ban on oil drilling around Chaco Canyon National Park. And, um, and you don't hear that from anybody. Uh, and there's a lot of cases like that where uh, the, not everybody, but a lot of the, uh, the Native people out there are trying to um, establish political control over public lands. And some of them are real open about this. This is all part of what's called the land back movement, which would be, and there's probably quite a few people, even in some of these more liberal uh, environmental groups that support it. But their their goal is to basically uh, get control of public lands, either directly by transfer, in other words, actually uh, get the transfer of the land, uh, whether it's Yellowstone Park or the Grand Canyon or whatever, or at least get what's called co-management. In fact, the Secretary of Interior recently put out a directive to all the uh, BLM and Fish and Wildlife Park Service that they have to find the ways to have co-management, which is a subject of another top uh, talk. But the uh, the basic understanding I have of that is that uh, the uh, it basically would give authority to tribal people to have um, you know vetoes things that they um, that these public agencies that are supposed to be representing everybody. Uh, might propose, or it might also mean that if they propose something, that the agencies more or less have to go along with it. Uh, and so I just see this all troublesome because it's it's basically giving a small subset of our society. And by the way, all all Native people are American citizens, so a small subset of the American citizenry, uh, greater voice and control of public lands that belong to everybody, or the best way to think about it, they don't belong to anybody. And uh, we ought to be thinking about all the other creatures out there that don't have a voice and be trying to think of what's best for them. Uh, we humans, have, we, we have taken care of ourselves quite well. <laughs> we need to start thinking beyond humans. Yeah, you know, that's, that's um, one of the reasons I keep having you on this program, apart from the fact that I enjoy talking with you, is that I just so appreciate your unceasing uh, advocacy for wild nature. It's it's it. I mean, I don't I don't know how often you get people saying how much they appreciate it, but I do. Well, I I, I appreciate I do appreciate that statement too coming from you as well. But uh, you know, and and I don't want to pretend like I'm some sort of uh, uh, you know. Flawless person or anything like that, and and I have no idea how I would react in every situation. 
but I, I, I like to try to think that uh, I look at it, it, how will some decision or, or proposal affect uh, the natural world? And, and, and I'm, I'm a, I actually think I'm a compromiser because I'm willing to accept some things uh, that maybe not everybody would. But, uh, but I, I'll tell you, I, I still want to, you know, look at sort of a balancing thing in my mind of like, is there some really positive thing that happens because of this uh, versus the negative? And, you know, it, it seems like in using the Eisenbeck case that, that alternatives were presented, like the hovercraft, like the, the new clinic, like the uh, Coast Guard air, uh, air, um, um, air service that would take a, a medical emergency to the airstrip. Um, those are reasonable alternatives in my view, anyway, that uh, does not require compromising the the wildlife refuges and 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 how that affects the wildlife in that area as well as the rest of Alaska. And the problem is, we see, and I know you're well aware of this, Derek, is that we're chipping away at all this stuff piece by piece by piece. You know, so this wildlife refuge, if they build a road across the south side of the Brooks Range, that's one more piece that's being compromised, and it. And we're not, you know, you don't, you can't, you can't make new wildlife areas. Uh, what we have is what we have, and it's shrinking all the time. And I think that that we have to really present a really strong case for any reason to compromise even a little bit of it. And uh, if you can't be, build a strong case, uh, then uh, then the default should be protection. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And thank you so much for all your work in the world, George. And uh, thank you for being on the program. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been George Wortner. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.